Welcome to the most electrifying must-listen-to podcast in sports entertainment. Welcome to FFC. I am your host, Damian Ellinghouse, accompanied as always by good friend and lover of long, luscious beards, Ryan Doyle. How are you, sir? I'm doing pretty good. I'm like, uh, I'm reaching the point of no return here, man. Oh no! You have to just let it grow until it tickles your balls. That's 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 what you got to okay, do now. Fine. I gotta let Papa Cuomo decide whether or yeah. not. Okay. Yeah, that's that's how this that's how this is gonna go. Um, yes, here we are. Two months into uh, pandemic hell, twenty twenty. Uh, end date never. How are we holding up? God, uh, good, I guess. <laughs> are we are we living living our best life? It feels like I started drinking on March thirty first, and uh, I just woke up the other day, so that's nice. <laughs> like I literally, we we lost a month. We lost a month of our lives. Yep. I mean, like I'm not I'm not like, you know, I'm not saying, oh, we got to go back to Applebee's. I'm just saying, you know, it's just like I have no recollection of April whatsoever. Yep. Because yep. I was pretty much just uh, drinking a lot of good beer and, uh, you know, having a lot of anxiety attacks. But, you know, kayfabe, kayfabe. We don't uh, we don't talk about that here. Yeah. I mean, as many um, as many panic attacks and anxiety attacks as possible, which neither of us get. We would never. But I think, uh, you know, some optimism, I think. We're starting to see the uh, the death toll certainly going down in New York State. Hopefully that contains itself and, you know, continues. Um, I think we could start seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, at least to get some semblance of life back. Uh, all I need is my buds, maybe. man. You know, shows are one thing. I'm all for waiting for treatments and vaccines to get those back, but just, just need my buds, man. Yeah. Yeah, what else What else do we got, right? Um, Wrestling. Wrestling. That's what we got. So, this is part three of our um, holy shit, it's history extravaganza. And uh, this will be the final in this part of the series as we talk about the modern day product and how we got there directly after the folding of WCW. Um, but before that, take five minutes or so, um, we uh we did watch Money in the Bank, and let me tell you something. Um, I need something in my fucking life, man. <laughs> it's a pretty pretty good pretty good pay per view. All things considered, is two and a half hours. Uh, was lean, mean, and uh, it was something. It was something. Shortest pay per view since one of the in your houses. I think I read. I'm yeah, forward. Fuck it. I don't need. I don't need. If you don't don't do four hours, if you don't need to. I agree. Uh. The matches that weren't the money in a bank were pretty solid. Uh, Bailey and Tamina actually had a pretty pretty good match. Uh, props mm-hmm. to Tamina. I don't think it's just Bailey. It's a cool spot involving Tamina throwing Bailey into the ropes from the outside into a, a clothesline, which was cool. Uh, Bailey retained, which was nice. Um, thought that the Drew McIntyre Seth match was pretty solid. Um, uh, yeah, for sure. If that was a regular match with the regular circumstances, it would have gone over pretty well. And, you know, 
I know this empty arena stuff isn't for everybody, but I like Drew has been carrying this and Seth too. I mean, like this is actually one of my favorite storylines in a while and uh, they're absolutely killing it. Yeah. And, um, and then the Bray and Braun match Bray actually wrestling as opposed to the Miz match where he just kind of laughed and got attacked and then won at the end. Uh, yeah. Had a cool little callback with Braun wearing the black sheep. And and I read this online, and I didn't really catch this in the moment, but when when Braun came out with the black sheep mask, Bray was saying, like, I told him I could find you. Like, I told him that I, that I could do this. And he was, like, talking about the Fiend. Like, he was saying, like, I, like, the Fiend wanted to get at Braun, but Bray was like, I can bring him back to the fold. Because then when Braun takes off the mask and stomps on it, Bray goes like, wait, wait, I can't, I can't stop. Like, like almost like he was saying, like, I can't, I'm not going to be able to protect you. So yeah. now we're probably going to see the fiend go after Braun. Uh, I'm glad so they added that Braun. little layer of just, you know, the little extra thing of using the mask and not just making Braun just go out there and fuck shit up. And, you know, it, like, I know a lot of people were nervous that after Braun won the belt, it was either, okay, well, he's going to get immediately squashed by the fiend or, you know, he's going to beat Bray and again. But I think there are, uh, them doing that extends this. A little more and uh you know i'm i'm hyped to see the next uh installment of the feud yeah yeah um i'm definitely looking forward to it and um the tag match uh the smackdown men's tag match was yeah, solid tag match. Yeah. solid new the, day uh, good to see wesley play getting some work i thought I he was uh i don't i don't like him necessarily either but i mean he's just been around for fucking ever and it's like it's just, you know, like Dawkins and Street Profits, you know, it's uh, it's good to see him. You know, at least he wasn't doing it for nothing, just as a, you know, from a fan perspective. I think that I like the Forgotten Sons as an in-ring product more than I like them as characters. That like they're, actually, they're, they're like a pretty solid tag team. They've got like some fun, uh, you know, double moves and like they're, you know, they're good workers. They sell well. Um I think I just don't really love that they have like Jackson Riker in the back. Like Jackson Riker's got a great look, but he's he's all look, and and you know you get bored after a while, and it's every match is the same. And here comes this, and you know it's like, I don't, and the the characters just aren't that interesting, but they're pretty solid in the ring, and so yep. you know I'm not like unhappy about it. But the topic really is the Money in the Bank match, and I got to tell you, WWE's been killing it with these cinematic matches. Uh, yeah, that shit was hysterical. I was legitimately like cackling at a min at many parts. I think everybody really bought into that match well. And uh, let's talk about the important thing, which is Asuka fucking won. Yeah, they did it right. You know, I was a little nervous about them uh, putting both of the men and women at the same time, but they really played it out really well. And then for it to culminate, pretty much like you know. The women came out first, and then the men, and then they were able to clean it up like that. That was cool, man. They really, they really utilized it well. I was a little nervous because you know it's funny too because my dad always joked like, "Oh, were they fighting at the uh, the office?" And I was like, "Dad, after twenty years of using that joke, they are finally fighting at the office today." <laughs> there you go. But um, uh, yeah, Oscar won. Baron Corbin killed two people, uh, and it was good. I think uh, you know. And look, you know the finish of the men's. Otis one, I'm a big Otis guy, but it's something different, you know. Like I, I've heard, especially with the Money in the Banks, and there, there have been some 
unusual winners every now and then, but for the most part, it's just like, you know, let's, let's change it up. Like time doesn't matter anymore. Nothing matters anymore. So let's, let's mm-hmm. do the screwy thing and let it play out. And you know, AJ, I don't, like, AJ was comedic gold throughout the whole thing, especially with the ending. Uh, he like drops, he fumbles the briefcase and then he, he's like, screaming. no, no, wait, wait, no. As he, as he then falls yeah. off the ladder, like he's got great comedic timing. Oh yeah. Consummate professionals to the max, but all the callbacks to the undertaker I enjoyed too, because like, you know, they explained it that he came back and he was able to dig his way out of the grave and stuff like that. But, but for him to add, you know, the PTSD of undertaker and, uh, you know, I'm certainly their story hasn't ended. No matter you know when when we'll see the taker again, but uh, yeah, no, really, they really pulled off everything well for sure. I was a fan, and uh, you know, got got a, a brother love cameo. You got a I Doink the Clown. You. Was it Doink yeah. or was it Frank the Clown? I couldn't tell. I don't know the difference. Well, um, I mean, the the guy who played Doink has unfortunately passed away. Frank the Clown is just one of the goofy WWE super fans who's. Is, I think still going out with Mick Foley's daughter, and he's just generally hated by the IWC. But <laughs> I guess it, I guess it was a joint character. It was just like they didn't put the nose on or anything. But I guess they can't. I mean, I'm sure they have a license to the character. But like I said, yeah. Uh, Jesus, when was the last time Doink was on TV? Yeah, who even knows? <laughs> uh, the Steph, the Stephanie cameo, I didn't hate as much as everyone, but it also was very like forced and stupid. Well, they didn't explain um, why they have a suitcase over the table. I mean, was it like just for show or something like that? Yeah, it was, it was, it was silly. But Dana was pretty good, and uh, yeah, Otis and Oscar, and and uh, like I've been saying, I, I I don't really catch the weekly product that much, but Raw had a huge announcement that um, you know Becky Lynch came out. And she called out Asuka, and she told Asuka to open up the briefcase, and the briefcase actually held the Raw Women's Championship because Becky is going on indefinite leave because her and Seth are having their first child. And so Asuka is now Raw Women's Champion, and the man is going to be out of commission for a while, probably wrestled WrestleMania pregnant. Um, Congratulations. Well, I, I I don't know about that. Can you do that? Well, because it, it, somebody did the math and they were like, you know, well, WrestleMania was was this day and, and this yeah, no, then, I guess so. it makes sense. Um, uh, yeah, congratulations to Becky and Seth. Seth uh, celebrated promptly by shoving Raven Mysterio's eye into the staircase. So and looking, he looks shot, dude. He looks fucking shot. <laughs> uh, yeah, Seth. Seth's character work was really good. Yeah. Um, but yeah. uh. But dude, I, I it was a, it was it was great. You know, it wasn't too goofy. I'm I'm wondering if they didn't tell Oscar beforehand because it looked like it was just generally like, oh my god, wait, you're pregnant? Holy shit! Like that's, that's so what great. I thought. That's that's what I thought. Is it, I I felt like her response was very genuine, uh, and I think we're probably gonna see. I mean, Oscar's heel character is so goofy that she's kind of a tweener anyway. Yeah. Because uh, she's just as she's really like her personality is really getting to shine and. Now we fucking get Asuka's Raw Women's Champion, which makes her um, a Triple Crown winner. She's won every Women's Championship in the, except for the NXT UK Women's Championship. She's won a Royal Rumble. She's won a Money in the Bank. All that's left is for her to win an Elimination Chamber. So kudos to her. So yeah, and then uh, we got Double or Nothing is happening on uh, the 23rd, Saturday. Love Saturday pay-per-views. There's not really enough of the card revealed yet i think to to really talk about it 
The only things we know for sure is we're going to get Moxley versus Brody Lee after uh, the Dark Order and him attack him and steal the belt. So that should be that should be fun and, you know, be interesting to see if we get some callbacks to S.H.I.E.L.D. Wyatt family nonsense. We've got a casino ladder match, which I don't really think there's been. Darby Allen, I think, is the only person that's in it so far. Um, Cassidy, too. Yeah, and Cassidy. Okay, cool. And then uh, MJF Jungle Boy. That'll be fun. Yeah, it should be fun. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, that's really, that's all that's there. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll just, we'll talk about it after it's happened. Um, but the last show that they did on dynamite, um, outside at the stadium where they had a little more people in the crowd, a little, because it was able to be a little more spaced out, uh, felt really good. That felt like the first episode of dynamite in a while that I felt was like pre, it, it would like pre pandemic levels of good. Um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. It reminded me of, like the old school like WCW shows. Yeah. So uh segment. So yeah, so that'll be cool. Um yeah, so I you know, we we'll we'll talk about AEW <laughs> next episode. It'll already happen, so we'll talk about it after. Have you heard the Sting News? Sting News, you say. The last thing I heard was was uh Lance Archer was like, oh, I would have loved to get in a ring with Sting. And then Sting was like, well, I'm just glad you have a chance at an AEW, which it didn't like occur to me at the time, but like they were probably in TNA at the same time together, weren't they? Yeah, that's right. I didn't think about that when he was doing that Guitar Hero gimmick. Yeah, that when he was Vance. Uh, yeah, he was probably, or Lance Hoyt. I don't know which one. Yeah. Uh, no, so so what other, is there, there's so, news beyond that? I mean, it picked up really quickly. He sent out that tweet to Archer and like nothing really came of it, but then like, you know, I think Cody made a comment on like he would love to have Sting in the fold, but Sting is under a Legends contract with WWE. So in between that tweet and today, Sting was released out of his contract. Oh, Legends, and I would not be surprised if his uh, appearance on AEW is imminent. Do we think Sting can move at all in a ring? I don't, th- I don't think so. But what he can do is present that TNT belt, and you know mm-hmm. he can have. A- uh, a role in it like so you can have a presence and, and arn anderson for sure yeah um, absolutely but who knows and you know i think he's a much better fit with AEW anyway and wwe didn't use him correctly so fuck him cool yeah why not fuck it i'm i'm, I'm and hey if it. he has one more match in him then i'd be down to see that yeah why not uh lance is having fun and uh you know it's good stuff and so this all now ties into today's episode so before we get going ryan do you have a beverage tonight yes i do i have a very uh i picked this up at the beer distributor i had never seen before it's called uh miller right miller oh that's interesting miller i think they're from south africa south africa okay uh uh, you know what? I feel like they I feel like they did a collab with Barrier not that long ago, actually. Oh, really? oh damn. Yeah. I know they I know they've been collabing with Blue Moon for a while. Okay, Melee Light for Ryan. And I have something a little less classy. I've got the lemon drop pills from Iconic. Ico NYC. Iconic is a local Long Island City brewery. Uh, they were also in Astoria. They had a taproom in Astoria that just closed recently. And I've been using uh, that website Taproom a lot recently. It's T-A-P-R-M. It's like a website. And basically my friend tells me that it's kind of like a – it's set up predominantly for 
brewers who want to like sell directly to people or or that like don't have contracts existing with other stores. There are like some exceptions to that, like Juice Bomb is there from Sloop, but it's a lot of like beer you can't get anywhere else. And so I've gotten a ton of like really great craft beer there for I don't feel like it's exorbitant prices. I feel like it's probably what you'd pay normally. Oh yeah, over the weekend Uh, I had uh, I grabbed some Sloop beverages. I grabbed the uh, the DDH bomb. Okay. And the Cloud Jumper. I think I've had Cloud Jumper before. Cloud Jumper's Cloud Jumper's okay, but DDH bomb is really good. It's in the vein of like the uh, the juice uh, IPAs that they really produce, and it was really good. And I uh, just want to give a quick shout out. Uh, a new beverage place opened up around the block for me. Classic Beverage in Belmore on Newbridge Road. Go check them out. They're on Instagram. And uh, they got a great selection, so I've been going in there and getting my uh, my quarantine stock, and uh, hopefully I'll be able to get some other uh, Sloop Brewery beverages over the weekend. I really like this service. Uh, this is coming across a lot like a plug, but I think they're from Flushing, and uh, yeah, it's nice to get it's nice to get craft beer delivered to my door and actually drink good shit. And this is I've already drank this before, but it's like really good. It's like this light, refreshing pilsner with a really good like sweet lemon hint in there very very crushable so uh nice so when we when we left off when we left the people last we had dealt with the inglorious ending of world championship wrestling and it's slow but also very fast demise uh after winning the ratings wars for almost two years straight uh, and being bought out by Vince. So, March 23rd, 2001. Vincent Kennedy, Big Vinny Mac McMahon, has just completed the purchase of WCW and all of its assets. And three days later, on the final Monday night that would feature both Raw and Nitro, every belt in WCW was defended at Night of Champions, a night in which the current U.S. champion Booker T., defeated heavyweight champion Scott Steiner uh, to win both belts. And the main event was longtime rivals Sting and Ric Flair had a blow-off match, uh, and it was very loosey-goosey. They were laughing. They're kind of smiling with each other. You know, they know what it is. Uh, and, you know, so throughout the night, Vince appears, right? And this is this is live, right? So this is live Raw, live Nitro. So this is a WCW crowd who I'm sure understand what the situation is, I have to think. But, yeah, I don't know, maybe there were some people that didn't in that crowd. Uh, but Vince appears throughout the night and does little vignettes. Uh, but notably what happens is he he fires Jeff Jarrett on air over a real-life feud. That's right. In, w- in which Jeff Jarrett had demanded payment from Vince for being booked on No Way Out a day after his contract ended, uh, and he was facing China, I think, for the U.S. championship. And China believed that they had let the storyline draw out intentionally until Jeff Jarrett's contract ended so that he could demand 300000 from Vince for the match. Jeff Jarrett says that, you know, he was offered stock options when he left, and it wasn't really like that, but whatever, that was the case. So, But Vince does this thing where, you know, for, for those who don't know, and we will talk a lot about Jeff Jarrett throughout this episode, so don't worry, this is... Not a throwaway. Um, But, you know, Jeff Jarrett, as you would have known him in WWF, if that's what you watched, uh, was kind of like this this silly little country singer man. J-A-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-F-
Yes, sir. Uh, and so, so yeah, he gets fired uh, publicly, and, and Vince, I think Vince says like, G double O N double E gone. <laughs> um, okay. He has like these other little vignettes, and like throughout it, uh, WCW guys get interviewed, and I think it's like somewhat out of kayfabe. Uh, but notably at the end, Vince simulcasts on Nitro and Raw, and he goes out, no chance, and says that, you know, he'll sign the WCW buyout contract at WrestleMania 17, but only if Ted Turner brings the contract to him himself, and then he starts listing all the WCW stars he's going to fire. You like Hulk Hogan? Fired! You like Scott Hall? Fired. He's just going through all the fucking stars that you love in WCW. And he's like, I can't wait to fire him. Uh, and and the crowd is like mercilessly booing him because at this point, this is 2001. This is full on Mr. McMahon. But also this is Vince. Like gone is humble. Uh, hello, Mr. Anderson. I'm Vince McMahon. And I'd like to talk to you about purchasing GCW. No, no, this is. This, <laughs> this is fuck full you. on attitude. <laughs> fuck you. Well, fuck yourself. Uh, so, so Vince is waving his dick in, and it's so bold to do this in front of a WCW crowd. Like it's, it's insane. Uh, but then Shane comes out and Shane's like, no, I, I bought WCW already. Ha ha. And, uh, and thus the invasion angle begins in earnest. The invasion angle. I think we've, we've spoken a smidge on this before about how like, it it's cool in theory, and it's what you, you you as a wrestling fan would have wanted this the whole time. Give me WCW versus WWF. Let me let me see them go at it. Um, and then ECW gets brought into the fold as well because they folded also in two thousand to two thousand one, right after. Uh, but the problem is 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 mag is is a few things. But now, what were you gonna say, Ryan? Well, I was gonna say they did so haphazardly in the beginning because what they did is that they did they didn't they kind of like went halfway with it where I believe the last hour of Raw was WCW. Last like twenty minutes, yeah, right, yeah, and it was so weird and like the crowd was so dead and they didn't really know how to react to it. I think the first match was um, Buff Bagwell versus Booker T, if I'm uh, correct. Yes, because something happens there where I think, or maybe it's Booker T comes out and attacks Vince. In that set, something happened. Yeah, there I didn't, never, yeah, but like the the WCW matches came out, and then like the weird trend, like the WWF stars like walking off, and like out come like the WCW guys, and they're like, "Well, this is weird," <laughs> you know. And so, and yeah, and they didn't they didn't immediately push it because they were building up to WrestleMania 17. So this all happens after WrestleMania 17. Uh, but but there's like a few things that led to it not working. So first off, Stephanie was running ECW in this storyline, and Shane's running WCW. Right. I say one th- one cool thing that they did is that a lot of the ECW stars, like it wasn't a full-on invasion. They had already signed with WWE at this point. So, um, and the, like, the one cool aspect about what they did is that eventually when WCW guys started getting the fold, and like, all right, let's roll with this, that uh, the WCW guys are attacking the WWE guys, and out come the expats of ECW. And they're about to fight the WCW guys, and then they all get in the middle of the ring and turn on the WWF guys. So that and, yeah, that was cool. But other than that, yeah, Stephanie leading ECW was not needed. 
there were a few issues that led to the angle not working out the way that uh, they probably intended, right? So one, again, was it it was a family feud within between the McMahons, which they had kind of been running throughout the entire late 90s. That's all throughout the Attitude Era is Shane versus Vince and Stephanie and Triple H. You know, it, it, it's, it's all over the place. So it's a rehash of that. Um, they did this thing where the WCW and ECW guys were presented as like these like low rank grapplers that had to cheat to win. Don't get me wrong. Invasion angles that often the invaders are heels and they will cheat, but like they weren't really presented as credible threats. A lot of the time they were just like bruisers who like had to cheat and could, I don't think anyone really ever went clean over anyone else. Um, And so like it didn't, so it never felt like a real threat. Uh, and in the case of Brawl at Invasion, which I think was the first pay-per-view for it, Austin turning on WWF is, like, the only reason that that they won. And, like, so, like you said, Vince would give 20 minutes at the end of Raw to WCW, but it was this weird transfer where, like, uh, you know, it's, again, WCW is dead. I don't want to see that. And there, and, like, Vince said on the simulcast he's like well maybe we'll do a show and maybe but it's like all dick waving so it you know it felt disingenuous i'm not sure if this was after the fact but i i know that at least shane wanted to what he wanted to do with wcw was turn it into like an nxt yeah thing it's it, yeah they they i think that was like when they first bought it they were thinking about what they were going to do with it um but i think that probably the biggest issue uh, but besides all of this is we spoke a little bit about this before or last episode. There was a lack of star power, not just throughout the WCW and ECW guys, but WWF as well. So when AOL bought out time Warner and the writing was on the wall and then Vince buys WCW, a lot of the highest paid guys decided that they, they don't want to work for less money or they don't want to work for Vince so they'll just ride out the contract because AOL had to honor it and they just sat on their asses. So right. just a small list of people that weren't here in this angle, Hulk Hogan, Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, Goldberg, Ric Flair, Rey Mysterio. Mysterio was because they didn't sign him. They had to choose between him and uh, I think maybe Guerrero. But Guerrero was also out. Chris Benoit was out. Sting wasn't there. Lex Luger wasn't yeah. there. Randy Savage wasn't there. Triple H was out injured. I think he ripped, that's when he fucked up his pectoral. Shawn Michaels was in the middle of his retirement. Like I said, Guerrero and Benoit were just, they weren't in the angle for whatever reason, despite the fact that Benoit was in the four horsemen at the end and like was a, you know, it's Eddie Guerrero was one of the most over guys in WCW. And then for ECW, Sandman, Sabu, and New Jack were not there. So like, there was no one really there to carry it outside of Stone Cold. Yeah, I mean, you had Taz and you had the Dudley Boys, and uh, I think Dreamer was there, but it wasn't enough. Oh, RVD too, but RVD was already in uh, WWE at that point. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know they could have benefited so much if they just did exactly what they did after the fact. Like they had the Radicals come in first, mm-hmm. and then they had NWO come in. I think if they did that, it would have been able to. Uh, they were able to sell it a lot more, but I mean, let's be honest. What the what the deal was here? Vince wanted to put his foot down on the face of WCW and smash into the ground because he won. And that's really what what this is, right? You got no star power. 
And it's really just embarrassing your competition. Do I understand the like primal urge to do that if you're Vince McMahon? Sure. But not only was it a little bit in poor taste, it also just didn't make for particularly captivating TV because it wasn't really about captivating TV. It was about fuck Ted Turner and yeah. fuck everyone else. So, And to their credit, you know, the first invasion pay-per-view that they had, WCW won. And WCW and ECW were riding the wave up until Survivor Series and when the uh, the penultimate match was between the two companies. So they did, they did attempt to give credence to the WCW side. Um, however, yeah, you're right. It was just pretty much a vehicle for Stone Cold to be heel, despite the fact that, you know, some of his best heel moments are there, like when he's playing guitar and stuff like that. And, mm-hmm. and of course, the, the birth of what? Yeah. So, you know, it's... It wasn't like a a ratings disaster or anything like that, but it's not it's not a great angle. It's it's yeah. not like anything to write home about, right? Now, mm-hmm. NWA, right? As we spoke about last episode, right? The once proud governing body of all of North American wrestling, links to Japan and Korea and all over the world and Europe. They were largely buried uh, in the wake of Jim Crockett Promotions folding into W being bought by Turner and in WCW folding. They, at this point, by 2001, they only had a couple of promotions under their banner come the end of the wars. Canadian, the Canadian Wrestling Federation, Central States, NWA Florida, which wasn't championship wrestling from Florida, but it was an affiliate. Uh, NWA Georgia, which is known as Wildside and is one of the, probably the more popular promotions at that time because people like R-Truth and Bob Sapp and AJ Styles and New Jack all like worked there. Uh, NWA Germany, Hawaii, Michigan, Mid-South, Japan, Southwest, Hammerlock. The only notable name that they had was Pro Wrestling Zero. And it was like Pro Wrestling Zero had just started. Uh, Hashimoto had just started it. Okay. So it wasn't it wasn't like a huge thing yet. Also, uh, I think he, he passed no, not too soon after that, right? It was not that long. It was like a year or so afterwards. Uh, so So they were like a husk. At this point, right? New Japan had left the NWA years ago when they partnered up with WCW and did WCW supercards. So they didn't have the true star power that of Japan. Uh, and then ECW, right? ECW actually was an NWA affiliate when it first started. Uh, don't know if you knew that. Eastern Championship Wrestling? Eastern Sports, yeah. Eastern, yeah. Eastern, Eastern, Eastern Championship, yeah, probably. Um, I did not yeah, know that. that, that was, I did not know that they were under the fold. That was an NWA affiliate. Uh, but what ended up happening was when they started getting some some TV money, they bolted, and <laughs> they didn't just bolt. They had Shane Douglas win the NWA title and then immediately like throw it away to pick up the ECW title. Mm-hmm. So like they buried it. NWA was discarded, trashed, and left to rot. Uh, Dan Severn, UFC star, held the belt for over four years, during which NWA actually attempted to partner up with the WWF because they were desperate for fucking anything, while WWF was still reeling from their beatdown from WCW because it's like 98. They're getting their asses handed to them by Nitro. They also, uh, there used to be the old commissioner. He was like kind of like the Jack Tunney type. It was Todd Gordon. And he was pretty much the face of the ECW before Paul took over. Mm-hmm. And they just pretty much like viscerated him on television, told him to like, it might have been the same night or not too soon thereafter of the Douglas incident. 
But uh, yeah, pretty much like the same thing. But I think if I recall correctly, like he was actually about to screw over Paul, so it was personal for him. That's possible, yeah. Um, and so again, so this is like '98, and an invasion angle takes place, uh, led by Jim Cornette and the aforementioned Jeff Jarrett, who had recently returned to the WWF after a short stint in which in WCW, in which he was a member of the Four Horsemen. Because like it got weird at the end with the Horsemen, fucking Jeff Jarrett and Chris Benoit were in it. Like it didn't make sense, uh, but they were there. Uh, and also in that little stable was the Rock and Roll Express, and then eventually Dan Severn. But the angle went nowhere and accomplished nothing. They like feuded with Bradshaw and Blackjack Mulligan. Yeah, and also I think uh, they had they tried to like repackage some of the teams, like the New Midnight Express and Miss Bart Gunn, and yep. I forget who, but that wasn't the original Midnight Express, and mm-hmm. again, they could have benefited that. I think Corny was trying to do something good. I think uh, Dennis Corluzzo at the time was um, either the president of NWA, and he he worked alongside Jim. Like that was Jim's pet project was to try to get like a little mini invasion going, but nobody really cared at the time, honestly. And that was exactly the thing. Is like. NWA is this historic body, but your average person isn't going to know who it is in 1998. Of course, yeah. Especially the WWF fan. Yeah. No, a connotation at the time was, you know, WCW was like, at least growing up in my circles, like my brother always told me like, oh, don't watch WCW, it's redneck shit. Well, they had the NWA belts. Yeah. They were the NWA. They were wearing it on their sleeve, at least that they came from there, WWF split off and set out to be something entirely different. Mm-hmm. So yeah. yeah, it just, it just like didn't catch on. Uh, and then Jeff would get fired after losing the NWA North American championship. He would then proceed to win his fifth and sixth intercontinental belts. Uh, the most ever until Jericho broke that in 2004 as he once again became J E double F. So NWA at this point, right, the invasion doesn't work, and Jarrett, Jeff Jarrett goes back to WCW and finds success kind of as a founding member of... I mean, I won't say kind of, like he finds success, but he becomes a member of NWO 2000 uh, when current WCW champion Bret Hart is the leader, along with the tag champions of Nash and Hall. Uh, and then he becomes WCW commissioner, and then he becomes leader of the New Blood when they rebooted WCW when they brought Bischoff and Russo back over and did the New Blood versus the Millionaires Club where it was the Young Blood versus the old guys, except that they made the old guys the good guys and they made the new stars the bad guys. And and I think that was within the time where Russo booked himself to be champion. But Jeff Jarrett in that period <laughs> did win the WCW World Heavyweight Championship four fucking times. Bro, you gotta put the belt on me, bro. So, so once WCW folded, WWF opted to not buy Jeff Jarrett's contract and the rest is history. Um, and so we're gonna see in a second how this connects to NWA, right? Now you're probably wondering why I'm spending any amount of time talking about JEFF this much, right? He's not a household name by any margin. Uh, but the reason why Jeff Jarrett, who was a largely unremarkable wrestler, good in the ring, 
like like not an incompetent wrestler and I, it's not like he was like a black hole of charisma he just wasn't uh he he's not really a guy you ever saw as a top guy you know that's just not who jeff jarrett was jeff jarrett is like a comedy guy who can like be in the upper mid card and occasionally work a main event he, he's not really someone you expected to lead your company to fame and fortune yeah, I don't know if you would agree uh, with that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, like, his current contemporaries would probably be, like, The Miz or uh, Dolph Ziggler, just guys who were just quality workers, but they were the smarmy heels, you know? They didn't really have a place at, like, dominating the roster. Yeah, probably more Dolph than Miz, like, like cause, and, and but a little less than Dolph, because Dolph is widely regarded as one of the best wrestlers currently, one of the best workers. Yeah, so. of course, and it's no disrespect. To Miz, but I mean Jeff Jarrett. No disrespect to Jeff as well, because Jeff was a hell of a worker. But you know, like like you said, nobody just saw not the that guy. Yeah. He's just not the guy. Yeah. So the reason that he was constantly put in these positions is because Jeff is the son of Jerry Winston Jarrett. Right? Jerry was an NWA tag team specialist in the Mid America territories, which included Tennessee, Kentucky, and Alabama, more colloquially known as the Memphis territories. Uh, Jerry won their tag titles 10 times, five of which are with his bestest pal, Tojo Yamamoto. Uh, that's, that's a real name. Uh, are you familiar he, with his work? Uh, he's a classic foreign heel. He, uh, mocked the Japanese because he was tapping into that real good post-World War II rage that we were feeling in the seventies, <laughs> uh, who one time apologized in broken English. Uh, to a crowd in Boaz, Alabama, for Pearl Harbor, started tearing oh, up, apologizing for, for apologizing for, for the bombings. Well. Uh, well, so everyone started applauding because he's like crying and he's like he was like me so sorry, like was bad, <laughs> and then he was like he was and, and then he was like like so sorry, so sorry that I didn't bomb Boaz instead, and then he gets oh wow yeah you know I guess that was a big like. I, I wasn't obviously alive at the time, but I guess that was a big uh, program for heels back in the day. It's just to the anti-Japanese. Because, you know, we look at Japan today and they're like an, an, a magnet of technology and and culture. And like, you know, it's they come off more docile. But yeah, they were ruthless uh, imperial dictators back in the day. And I guess, you know, wrestling especially rode that wave for close to 30 years like i would imagine how you know fritz von eric adopted the the german side of things well and funny that you you talk about fritz because this is something that i, I just kind of found about memphis uh is that aside from jerry and yamamoto they also had the von burens who were goose stepping nazis <laughs> uh so they were basically the same thing as the original von eric gimmick uh the fabulous kangaroos who were like Australian bushwhackers who walked around with boomerangs and uh, trailblazers, you know, and Bobby Hart. Bobby Hart was there. Are they so, like, the this is just, what? Are no, they no ding dongs. No ding dongs. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we do highbrow cultural critiques in Memphis. We don't do the ding dongs. We just do, we just do Australian people like boomerangs and fosters. Um, so, so Jerry and Yamamoto were trailblazers of the day, and Memphis focused primarily on tag team wrestling, as many old school territories did. Tag wrestling 
it's it's really kind of funny to think about now to not go on too far of a tangent, but you you, you see teams like the Revival and the Young Bucks talk about bringing uh, tag team wrestling back to the forefront of wrestling, and you don't you know it's you don't think about it, but back in the day, tag team wrestling was the form of wrestling. That was like singles wrestling was much less popular. Mm-hmm. That's that shift really happened in the eighties and nineties as personalities really kind of took over, and the who you were became a bigger deal than like what you could do. Yeah, um, tag team and, wrestling has a very deep rooted culture, especially in Southern wrestling. Uh, we we touched upon the Freebirds, mm-hmm. uh, Midnight Express, um, and then you know, of course, probably the most celebrated Southern tag team of all time, the Rock and Roll Express, who Absolutely. were like huge man. They were the Hardy Boys, but bigger back in the day. Yeah, and people went nuts for these guys. No, yeah, Ricky was fucking. Nuts. Yeah, I mean, they were doing they like considering like they were doing top rope moves, and you know, people were literally ripping the shirts off their backs. And yeah, that's mm-hmm. a big reason for it. You know, a yeah. lot of the times, you know, tag team is good because you can use a lot of guys on the roster. You can have four different philosophies going on at the same time. And uh, yeah, when when I think of tag team wrestling in the modern era, I'm thinking of because I can't really recall a lot of. Celebrated tag teams coming out of, you know, WWF at this time, besides like Bulldogs, who were their own thing pretty much, and they just happened to use WWE as an outlet. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, no, when I think of tag team wrestling back in the day, I think of uh, Southern. The Hawaiians, maybe? In WWF? Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Like the Wild Samoans, especially. But, you know, um, but classic tag team wrestling for sure from mid south and all the territories down there yeah for sure and so but nestled in this little tag team community was uh someone who would go on to be one of the most popular figures in all of wrestling jerry the king lawler uh, and jerry was a bruising cheating scoundrel whose signature move was the pile driver in an era where that shit was not okay it was not okay to just fucking pile drive people it was effective. It was simple. Just, I'm going to pick this dude up and I'm going to plant him on his fucking head. Giggling. Uh, and so the king worked most of his career as a heel, but he was so popular in this area that, like, he always got cheered. You know, he's, you can kind of think of him, you know, to compare it to someone as, like, maybe a Minoru Suzuki. Like, someone who is just a dastardly piece of shit, but the crowd loves him so much that he's he kind of never doesn't you know he he never gets booed yeah uh and it makes it kind of difficult but you know can push it through so and what happens here is the territory splits in two after jerry jarrett was finagled by the main booker at the time nick gulas uh he paid for what he thought was a 10 percent share of the territory he paid like fifty thousand dollars in 1977 it's a lot of fucking money uh but what he actually bought was a purchasing option which expired by the time he realized that he had bought it so he paid fifty thousand dollars for for nothing he just he just gave the kulas fifty thousand dollars so he uh, so he didn't love that and so jerry started began he he started booking shows out of the cook convention center uh and kind of went right at gulas while Gulas focused on Nashville and secu- and uh, and so Jerry Jarrett secures a deal with the NWA, 
that would therefore allow the current champion Harley race in the middle of Harley's like I think it was like a 900 day reign come through the territories right because that was the big draw of NWA you get the top guy comes puts all your people over so and you got Harley kind of at like the peak of Harley's shit or maybe on the ascent you want to say yeah um and Nikolas had all of the star power but Jarrett had Lawler because the Jerry's got they became very close and Lawler was by far and away the most popular wrestler in the area so without Lawler it was a matter of time Nikolas ended up folding and and so this created the Continental Wrestling Alliance uh which people may recall from the first part of this where I said Macho Man got held up at gunpoint by a booker. That's from CWA. Um, so, and this is where Jerry really becomes a big deal. He becomes a centerpiece. The man won the Southern Heavyweight Championship in one form or another over 51 times. Amazing. 51 and they complain about Triple H, huh? What do we even do with that fucking information? I don't even know if that's an accurate number. No, it because definitely if you, No, but like if you... So if you go through the NWA title reigns, right? I can count 51. But there are also three other iterations of that belt that he won 10 times, three times, and seven oh, times. Three, yeah. So I have no fucking idea how many times he won this belt. But like if you don't like Brock Lesnar and you didn't like Triple H's <laughs> Reign of Terror, you sure as shit weren't going to like Jerry Lawler. Um, no, that's true. In, but but when that's when you think of Memphis, you think of Jerry, right? And that's how it went. Your yeah. top guy went over everybody and he has to lose the belt, right, to mm -hmm. be able to get it back. So that's yeah, the 50 fucking times <laughs> just how it went. Anyway, but what really put Jerry on the map was the feud with his former manager, Jimmy Hart. Now, Jerry got hurt in like the eight, I think 1980, and Jimmy Hart set out to replace the king, uh, you know, crowning new kings. And he, he created a stable known as the First Family. And this pitted Jerry against the likes of people like Jesse Ventura, uh, Bugsy McGraw, Kevin Sullivan, Hulk Hogan, list goes on and on. Bunch of big names at the time. Until 1985, when Jimmy Hart signed with WWF and Lawler beat Eddie Gilbert in a if I win, Jimmy Hart goes home match. But in the middle of that feud, around 1982, was a, a certain different type of someone that Jimmy started managing. A young upstart who ran intergender matches where he squashed women in the crowd. Yes. Uh, and Jimmy took this young upstart under his wing. And that man was Andy Kaufman. Now, I'm going to let Ryan talk about this a little bit. But something fun that I want to bring up before we, we talk about Andy is... I don't know if you knew this, but this is a fun fact to learn. So Andy, Andy Kaufman is a huge wrestling fan, been a huge wrestling fan his whole life, as you will see as we talk mm -hmm. about it. Andy wanted to bring this to the WWF when Vince Sr. was still running it. And That's Vince Sr. laughed him out of the building because he said, I don't want to put show business into my wrestling world. Oh, Vinny. Vinny, if you only knew. Go to sleep, Papa. <laughs> So, Ryan, tell, tell us a little bit about the feud between uh, Jerry the King Lawler and Andy Kaufman. So, a lot of the younger generation is probably not familiar with Andy Kaufman, but Andy Kaufman is probably like one of the most legendary comedians of all time, mainly because 
he celebrated and embraced kayfabe. Live the gimmick, baby. He lived the gimmick. The gimmick. This man loved it so much that he adopted and was molded by it. And, you know, to the point of like, so he first started out on Saturday Night Live and, you know, he would also do, for example, he had a famous show in Carnegie Hall where he had a shtick of where he would bring up a, a woman dressed up as his grandmother on stage and like introduce him to the audience and, you know, people bought it. And then the woman would like have a heart attack on stage and like he would stop his show and like start bawling on stage, start crying. And at the end of the, like at the end of it, there was one famous one when this old woman started to have a heart attack on stage and he was crying. And he's like, you know what? I'm not upset. Fuck my grandma and ripped off the face. And it was Robin Williams. <laughs> uh, he was also famous for at the end of his shows, he would have a bunch of buses lined up outside and invited everybody to have milk and cookies with him at the local diner. And so he was taking crowds of like. 5,000 people to like this diner to have milk and cookies with him. And <laughs> it was just absolutely incredible. Another character he used to have was Tony Clifton, where it was like this fat lounge singer. Mm-hmm. But the great part about it was is that he had his partner, Bob Zamunda, who literally would double this character to a T. So people thought they were seeing Andy Kaufman as Tony Clifton, this lounge singer. And then Andy Kaufman would walk out and be like, hey, Tony Clifton, everybody. Everybody's like, what the fuck? Like, I'm, I'm, my mind is blown. <laughs> but where when Andy really shined was his uh, foray into the wrestling world. And as you touched upon, uh, his first skits would be to fight intergender tag team wrestling matches. And he would find you know these big hulking women to fight him. And he would literally fight them, dude. Mm-hmm. And he went over on them. He was like this buck fifty five foot eight guy and you know he would go over on this woman and it was a riot and it was mainly on saturday live i believe and you know other media outlets at the time but um what he really wanted to do was take it to the next level and so he tagged up with jerry the king waller it was absolutely incredible because this was during the time in mid-south and andy coffin comes in to the Southern Territory, this New York Jew, and he just ripping apart this Southern crowd to shreds, literally shitting on them. And the gimmick was is that uh, Laura would come in and you know be the hero and go over on him. But what culminated it to the most part, and I'll have Damien link this up because it's a very famous clip if you never saw it. Uh, this happened, and they both decided to go on David Letterman, who was yes. just starting out his show at the time. And if memory and, serves, before yes. before you continue, he already had a neck brace on, right? Yes, he already had a he match. Goes on that interview? Yeah, he already had a match where Jerry gave him uh, a pile driver in a match earlier, uh, previously the week before, I believe. And you know, it, people like people. Like, believe me, at the time, this is when wrestling was alive and well. Kayfabe was alive and well, and people were like, "Dude, like Jerry, like really." Like, they had an ambulance come out at the match, and they stopped everything, and people were buying this, that, like, Andy was legitimately hurt. Hey, killed him. Fucking so, killed him. Yeah. So David Letterman has Jerry come on, and I'm not entirely sure at the, at the time, but, you know, I'm sure he was known amongst wrestling circles, but to a larger national audience, people don't really know who this guy is. So, you know, Jerry was, uh, 
And if you know the king, especially like today, of like how what like a wacky character is, especially in the nineties. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. No, that was not him. Jerry is a very soft-spoken like brute, like the southern guy, and like you know he's very rough and tough. And Letterman's interviewing him. It's like, how would you do this to Andy and stuff like that? He's like, I don't give a shit about Andy. And as he's interviewing him, out comes Andy Kaufman in like this big, ridiculous foam neck brace. And he's like, no, no, David, stop it. Stop it. Stop this right now. He's like, I'm going to sue you, lawyer. I'm going to fucking sue you for everything you fucking have. And like, I don't think they told Letterman what was going on at the time. (laughs) So Letterman's looking at like his sensor and like, you know, like, what is going on? I don't know what's going on. And then so the slap around the world happens. Jerry Lore slaps Andy Kaufman so fucking hard that he goes down. And, like, David Letterman stands up, and he's like, what the hell is going on? And, like, they're flipping chairs. And, you know, <laughs> security has to come out. They cut the episode short. And, yeah, that was it. It was, the, it was probably, like, the biggest uh, kayfabe crossover of our time. Certainly, you couldn't pull that off today because people are, you know, keen to the sense of it but yeah it was it was legendary people loved it people ate it up so jerry and annie remained friends up until annie tragically passed away of lung cancer at a very young age when he was pretty much at the height of his career still and you know annie wasn't a smoker or anything so for him to pass away of lung cancer was like a very not suspicious but you know just a very abnormal thing at the time and you know his love of kayfabe was so strong that people still to this day do not believe that Andy Kaufman has died. Mm-hmm. Um, the movie, people who don't know Andy Kaufman might know the movie Man on the Moon that Jim Carrey did where he played him. Which if you haven't um, seen that movie, absolutely watch it. Yes, great movie. And and at the end, they do a thing where Tony Clifton is on stage. And so, because Bob, because Tony Clifton still makes appearances. Like Bob, Bob Smuda still like goes out and does it. But at the end of Man in the Moon, they show like Bob in the background, in the back of like a theater, watching Tony Clifton, and like mm-hmm. so it's kind of left because Andy Kaufman also always spoke about faking his own death. He always spoke about like he thought it would be the greatest prank, and he had it all planned out. Um, you know, it's it's one of those he great stories. At length with his brother and his associates, so yes. I'm sure even at the time. Mm-hmm. They didn't know what was going on. Yeah, but... definitely plausible. Definitely yeah. plausible to his closest loved ones. I would think the closest comparable situation I can think of, like a crossover, and again, it's not kayfabe, because you, you'll never get that level of belief in reality mm-hmm. from people ever again. You just can't. But I would think that probably the biggest crossover I can think of is when they had Seth Rollins beefing with Jon Stewart. Yeah. I think that's probably because like Seth would just show up on the daily show and like fuck with John and John started showing up and on WWN, it was a big deal because you know, it wasn't on the USA network. It was comedy central. So it was, it was like an actual crossover. It was very cool. I think Seth put him through a table at one point um, <laughs> and it was like peak cocky fucking Seth Rollins. So he's just coming out. Like, <laughs> <Screw you, John. laughs> also, I would say the Tyson crossover as well, because Tyson was like, at the height of his career and such a uh-huh. loose cannon in, in real life that like, yeah, you know what? He may have been part of the act, but anything could have gone wrong at any time. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So that's, so that's like a little foray into Memphis and CWA and 
And so that's that's what like makes Jeff Jarrett such a big deal is Jeff, you know, wrestles in CWA and then he goes to WCW and and Jerry Jarrett is considered a wrestling genius. He's considered a real master of his craft. So there's a lot of respect for him and so a lot of respect for his son. And by most accounts, you know, Jeff's a decent guy. So I you know, I think he I think he works well with that older crowd. He gets that style of wrestling and the territory era and like the old school wrestlers were very big on the idea of a handshake deal, right? That's who Vince senior was. That's who giant Baba was. That's who all the Southern guys were. doesn't mean that they weren't carnies who would screw you over, but there, there was this idea of ethics and business for, for some of them. And so there was healthy respect with Jeff. So back now to 2001 and fresh off of uh, Jeff Jarrett's very public firing from Vince McMahon, he goes out fishing with uh with his father jerry and a man by the name of bob Ryder. and that's their fishing having some beverages they had the idea to start a show that would be funded strictly through weekly pay-per-views and therefore wouldn't be beholden to television deals and ratings as wwf and wcw were and you know a power vacuum existed in the wrestling world as the decaying corpse of nwa was the only thing left against the wwe and so they had the idea to to do a show that would only be weekly pay-per-views. And they bring in Vince Russo because we just can't leave Vince Russo out of it. He just has to fucking show up. Vince Russo is brought in as a creative director. And thus, NWA Total Nonstop Action was born. TNA lives. Initially... TNA started as a $9.99 weekly pay-per-view event on Wednesdays that was held at the fairgrounds in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, they immediately stripped Dan Severn of the NWA title when he no-showed their inaugural event, and they put it on Ken Shamrock after Ken Shamrock won like a battle royale. Um, and the reason that this gets to be NWA TNA and the reason that this is the NWA belts we're talking about is because, like I said, the NWA had nothing else going on, and they made a deal with NWA to, to, you know, okay, TNA will be the show. So just like how at a point in the 80s, Jim Crockett promotions and NWA were kind of synonymous, and then how WCW and NWA were synonymous, now TNA and NWA were synonymous. So Impact began, um, er, er, TNA began with a solid enough roster of veterans, such as Jeff Jarrett, Scott Hall, Ken Shamrock, Rick Steiner, and Buff Bagwell, along with younger upstarts such as Loki, AJ Styles, and Brian Lawler, who some fans might know better as Grandmaster Sexay, uh, who tragically passed away some time ago. So, Jerry the King's son. Jerry the King's son, yes. Uh, and as they began to get some momentum, there became clashes between Russo and Jarrett. Jeff Jarrett wished to wrestle that old-school Southern style, and Vince Russo probably wanted to put somebody's grandmother on a pole and fish them out for a, a title. I don't know. Whatever. Uh, you know, Russo's, Russo's Russo. So, in that was October, another man at the time, too. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and uh, October 2002, Panda Energy buys a 72% controlling interest in TNA and launches their first TV show, Explosion. Now, you're probably thinking to yourself, what the fuck does an energy company want anything to do with, like, wrestling, Southern wrestling? Well, Panda did this because Dixie Carter was the marketing agent for TNA, and Dixie Carter's parents owned Panda. And so they bought up TNA, 
and TNA made Dixie Carter their president, which is kind of fascinating because like Dixie Carter doesn't didn't really know anything about wrestling. And a famous story goes that Dixie didn't know what kayfabe was until Hulk Hogan explained it to her. Um, but listen, man, she's willing to open up the purse strings. And so TNA moved from Nashville to Universal Studios in Florida and Impact began in May of 2004. And once more, there was competition between WWE and another company, and the war was back. It's well, also pretty interesting, like, you know, despite how much we joke, like, she was a woman running a national wrestling promotion, especially for a southern wrestling promotion, which is, you know, I mean, you may have, I may not be touching upon figures, but, you know, that's impressive at the time. Yeah, yeah, sure. And simultaneously almost, uh, a few years back from this, February 23rd, 2002, uh, shortly after the folding of ECW, uh, RF video owner Rob Feinstein and RF videos kind of ran all of the wrestling like video right things. I guess they like made all of the tapes and shit. Uh, RF video owner Rob Feinstein had been trying to get in with CZW, um, the true fucking hardcore of hardcore wrestling. Oh, yeah. Uh, but they they weren't interested, and so they he decides let me start my own company. Fuck it, and so he holds the Era of Honor Begins event, which includes a triple threat between Brian Danielson, who uh, you know if you can't can't guess who that is, it's it's, it's Daniel Bryanson, yes, <laughs> Loki and Christopher Daniels. Uh, who are kind of known as the the godfathers of Ring of Honor. And so Ring of Honor starts in 2002 at kind of the same time, right? They develop a burgeoning relationship with TNA. So they start sharing people back and forth. Uh, that was until 2004 uh, when Rob Feinstein got caught in a sting where he was trying to fuck a child. Oh. Wow. Uh, and, uh... <laughs> you mean a nefarious character running a wrestling promotion? Ah, oh, damn. I know it's wild. That's shocked. Uh, so wouldn't you know it? He just got kicked out and that promptly ended their relationship with TNA. But so ring of honor starts kind of from the ashes of ECW and TNA, not from the ashes of ECW, but with the idea to be an edgier product and we've got competition again, but now see, here's the thing, right? This isn't, this isn't like WCW. TNA is, is like kind of a weird thing in wrestling lore because it feels like the type of thing that really should have been bigger than it was and it never got to that point, but also simultaneously feels like it never actually was real competition to WWE. Like it was different, but not different enough. No, it, you're absolutely right. I mean, they didn't have the financial ability to get to where... WWE was at the time, but precisely the roster that they cultivated at the time, like really struck a chord with the last fans of the Attitude Era at the time, because this is like the point of ruthless aggression where, like, all right, now we're starting to transition into like classic WWE, like cartoony shit, because now Vince was back at the reins of everything. He didn't have any competition, so mm -hmm. he gets to do pretty much primarily whatever he wants. And, you know, don't get me wrong, like, you know, there's a lot of good wrestling at the time at WWE, but, at, you know, it's Vince doing his 90s stuff again. Yeah. And, and, you know, people were really clamoring for a different product at the time. It's just that those lapsed fans, uh, 
didn't transition over to the product to where it was going to be elevated to a competitor for WWE. And that's because, you know, WCW was markedly different than WWF for a time. What turned people away from WCW was Vince Russo. It was shit that Vince Russo was writing. It was dumb, silly gimmicks and nonsense and authority heel figures all over. The- it was shit that that if you wanted something different from WWE, you could no longer go to. And and that's that was the struggle between Jeff Jarrett and Vince Russo and ultimately would lead to Jarrett leaving. But you mentioned the roster, right? You look back on the Ring of Honor uh, rosters and you look back on the TNA rosters and they're great, right? TNA had AJ Styles, young, fucking athletic, insane AJ Styles, low-key, Christopher Daniels, Samoa Joe, R-Truth when he was Ron Killings. And let me tell you something, folks. You don't know, if you're thinking like R-Truth now, right? You're probably thinking, why the fuck are you mentioning him? He was the first uh, black champion for TNA. And Ron Killings was a very, very different character. Hell, even when Lil Jimmy started with R-Truth when he was feuding with John Cena, you're, you're not thinking of the same the same guy who's a much more you know he's always been charismatic he's a very different guy austin aries right made his money in tna roddy strong but nigel mcginnis nigel mcginnis yes nigel mcginnis uh current commentator for nxt and nxt uk who had to retire after a pretty bad injury but was like kind of one of the most popular young british wrestlers at the time um a real a real trailblazer in a lot of ways but with all of this young talent it was still Jeff Jarrett who ended up six-time TNA champion by the time 2006 came around with his stable planet Jarrett alongside Abyss, Alex Shelley, Scott Steiner, America's Most Wanted. Um, and like what sold people on TNA was the X Division. It was like their cruiserweights, right? Like WCW putting a lot of effort into that division, but they never got past Jeff Jarrett and it's not, it's not all Jeff Jarrett's fault. Right. And I don't want to suggest that he like just booked himself to win or it's not quite that simple. It's not all Jeff Jarrett's fault, but what ended up happening with TNA, uh, you know, maybe you'll be able to elaborate a little bit is kind of like WCW, right? When WCW started winning the ratings wars and NWO happened, sure. It started on the backs of Kevin Nash and Scott Hall and Hulk Hogan, but it was very different. WCW always built up its young its young stars in that era, and NWO was more than just WWF cast-offs because they were also building new talent and building new interesting content for older characters. But TNA, TNA just became a place where you got cast-offs from WWF. No disrespect to someone like Kurt Angle, who had an incredible run in TNA, but also probably helped kill TNA. And only went there because TNA didn't give a shit about whether you did drugs. Same reason Jeff Hardy went over there. Well, it's the classic adage of what destroyed them, and it was that they let the boys run the show. Uh, you know, I, one figure that you didn't touch upon that was active with TNA at the time was good old Corny. Yes. Corny uh, was one of the bookers for TNA, and, you know, this was during the X Division time. And Dixie brings in Russo, his Lex Luthor, you know? And at first, you know, I think Corny was in a good position where he was just like, okay, like, I'll see what I can do. But eventually it just became too much. And 
you know, TNA actually got themselves a Spike TV contract. And the TV executives did not like Vince Russo at all. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Dixie Carter, for whatever reason, had, like, you know, Kevin Nash always said, you know, if you wanted something, go have a drink with Dixie. And she's like, okay, fine, you can have whatever you want. And it pretty much just became that. And the boys ran the show. And it just became the retirement home for the old WCW guys and the Wolfpack and, like, you know, all the click and all that stuff that weren't already in WWE at the time. You got to remember, too, during this time, this is like Triple H's reign of terror, where, like, people are just, oh, my God, like, you know, I need something new. I need something exciting. And that's when TNA was originally pushing, like, you know, the X Division, and they were pushing all these new stars. Mm-hmm. Um. But, you know, I think Nash became the booker and, you know, Scott Hall was not doing good at the time. And there's a very shoot, there's a very famous shoot uh, promo where uh, Nash was supposed to team with Hall against Samoa Joe. And forgive me, I'm not sure at the time, but Hall no-showed. And Samoa Joe cuts a vicious promo on Nash. And Samoa Joe's a young gun. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, not this bullshit. We're trying to build up a good promotion here, and you guys just keep coming in and fucking shit up. And after that, Nash went backstage and slapped him across the face. Now, Samoa mm-hmm. Joe regrets it. He's publicly stated that he regrets it, but I'm sure he didn't. He stated his, his business on what was going wrong at the time, and they had something cultivating that was great. And, you know, it's, it's just it didn't work out because... Again, you know, when the inmates run the asylum, you don't have good business. And the thing about Russo is it's it's a crazy thought to think about now, especially. But Vince Russo had Vince McMahon to go through. Am I going to sit here and tell you that every fucking decision Vince made in the 90s worked? No, Vince has always been like the same guy. And like, he that's his problem is he's never developed past a certain thing that works. But... As we we constantly talk about, right, there, all the negatives I can heap upon Vince McMahon, what he did to the wrestling business, what he is as a person, right, doesn't detract from the fact that the man understood his audience, the man understood what people wanted to see, and Vince Russo got tempered by, and listen, Vince, in the heat of the wars, the Attitude Era, right, the people remember that as like their fondest memories, and when you go back now and you watch it, you know, you realize Wow, a lot of this fucking sucked. But the top had never been hotter. Triple H, The Rock, Stone yeah. Cold. It had never been hotter. More charismatic taker, you know. But, you know, Russo got tempered. If he didn't have someone tempering him, he made trash. But beyond Vince Russo, another, like you said, inmates running the asylum, right? The problem is not giving guys a say in what happens to them. It's who you give that say to. And on October 27th, 2009... TNA signs Hulk Hogan and Eric Bischoff. Dixie Carter announces that Impact is going to be moved to Monday nights. And like he's like, we're literally dragging the bloated corpse of WCW and NWO back into fucking 2009 now. And we're going to move to Monday nights. Impact was not Nitro. And that's the thing, right? WCW is the story of what should have been. WCW won the Monday Night Wars. They were winning. They had the momentum. And like I said last week, when Bret Hart showed up, that should have been the end. Should have been the fucking, it should have been a a dagger to the heart. WCW should have been the company remaining today. But the reason Nitro is able to be successful is not just because they rested their laurels on on 
proven guys. It was a willingness to give it to the reins over, but also Bischoff had a really great vision and it worked and they had Turner money behind it. Impact was nowhere near that. The, pro- the production value was nowhere near that. The star power was nowhere near that. And as great as guys like AJ and Samojo were, they didn't allow them to be who they should have been in that division. Same thing with Christopher Daniels. And they moved to Monday nights. It in They debut on March 8th, 2010 on Monday nights. And they moved back not but two months later because they lost 2 million viewers and never even came close to beating Raw in the ratings. Not even well, one time. Do you know what also aired on raw the same night that they debuted their it Monday night was, on Spike. it was bret hart returning for the first yes. time since mm-hmm. the screw job yes and listen man 2010 wwe is a very lean era so if there was a time to strike for tna it was now but vince ain't gonna let that happen so we had bret hart return and yep you know it's hogan and bischoff bischoff's less yeah. of a problem than hogan in a lot of ways honestly you just there's certain guys that if you give that type of control to, they just it ain't going to go well. No, right? of course. And, and uh, they had good things again at the time. Like Abyss was huge at this time. Uh, you know, a Kane type. He was a, kind of like a Kane-Mankind crossover. And, you know, he had the belt, and he was, they were putting on excellent matches. And I don't know what it was. Like, I, like the things that Bischoff and Hulk as much as we shit on them, like they they kind of had the pieces in place to make it work. But like you said, like I think Nash was the booker at the time, and friends being friends, like you know they're not gonna, yeah, not gonna work. Know, Christopher Daniels got one short reign with the uh, either the X division belt. Yeah, or that was the thing too. Was like you know they didn't they had all these stars that like got the ceiling and they just couldn't break the glass. Sorry, it's the pun, but. Yeah, that's this pretty much what it came down to, and you know, as much as you try to strike the match, and it, you know, eventually you run out of the whole book. Where do you go from there? There's nothing left to do. Yeah, and once once they got crushed in the ratings, right? They started running into money issues. People start leaving. Kurt gets real fucked up. Like it, yeah. it gets sad. TNA gets bad, and Ring of Honor doesn't really even. They're not anywhere on TNA's level, and so. This is a little bit of like a dark era for wrestling, depending on how you want to look at it. Because basically, you know, if you were willing to watch Spike and you were willing to watch Impact, you had a great product to watch, but with way too much fuckery. Like, it's not to suggest that WCW hit every time, but like when in the middle of the NWO initial takeover, all the way from from 96 to 99, it almost felt like they could do no wrong. Every episode of Nitro was must-watch TV. Uh, TNA never really got to that level and Ring of Honor didn't have a deal that would let them get to that level and so you only had WWE and listen, there was some great shit that happened uh, but there's also a lot of not great shit that happened in that era, right? 2010 era, you're talking Daniel Bryan eventually goes over there CM Punk over there, Wade Barrett Nexus, The Shield debuts a lot of cool things but a lot of fuckery you're like peak Super Cena at that point um So, you know, there's not a lot going for people. New Japan, right? If you're a fan of Japanese wrestling, you're just coming off of Enochism. You know, like you're just finally getting 
Tanahashi and Nakamura and Kazuchika Okada. But like, again, the exposure wasn't there for the American crowds. So you had WWE or you had nothing. But this is where things get kind of interesting now. So, but, but to stop for a second there, right? We've been talking a lot about the royal families of wrestling throughout um, these episodes, right? Talking about the hearts and the Von Eriks and the flares. And so, you know, just to touch a little bit on what's happening here, because we're now in this era. Okay. Cody Rhodes is in WWE as of 2007, right? He begins his career uh, with, um, I think it's Ohio state, right? Ohio state wrestling, which was the early developmental brand for WWE. Oh, Ohio Valley. I'm sorry. Ohio Valley. Yeah, Ohio Valley. My my apologies. Um, so then he, he gets that pipeline, goes to WWE. He wins the tag championships with Hardcore Holly. He then tags up with Ted DiBiase Jr., forms legacy with Randy Orton, becomes dashing Cody Rhodes. He teams up with Drew McIntyre to become tag champions for a third time at Night of Champions in 2010. I'm going very quick because like Cody Rhodes is kind of just a guy up to this point. Yeah. He's like a he's like a clearly talented wrestler, but like he's not all that interesting. People started liking him when he becomes the undashing Cody Rhodes when he starts wearing the face mask after Ray fucks up his nose. Yeah. And he wins the Intercontinental Championship and like he has two reigns that almost goes a year and people start noticing that that Cody's good and then Cody starts teaming up with Dustin while Dusty is still alive and like they do this angle where like they get fired and Dusty has to plea for him to to get hired again and Big Show beats him up. Uh and then he becomes Stardust. And like I don't know how people view Stardust, but for me, like Goldust works because Dustin Rhodes made it work. Stardust just felt like why? Did we need to go this goofy with this guy? Like Cody Rhodes is just kind of a joke this entire time. It's interesting that you mentioned that because right before then is like the height of like like Dustin was having a real renaissance at this time, and it culminated in a match between um, Cody Rhodes and Dustin fighting the Shield. And it's it's a great tag team match. I recommend anybody to watch it. Um. But what they initially wanted to do is like, okay, so like, you know, like they were happy to be brothers and tag teaming again. And then uh, Cody wanted to emanate his brother and come up with his own character. So he came up with Stardust. This was supposed to culminate in a match between the two where like, you know, they were big on doing like the comic book stuff at the time. Like Neville, this is like when he first came around. And, you know, I guess they were just trying to hype off the, the Avengers stuff. And, um... What it was supposed to culminate in is in a match. And they had a match. Uh, I think it was like a fast lane or something like that. But mm-hmm. they wanted it, like, all Dustin wanted to do was like, okay, let me fight Cody at WrestleMania, and then I'm gone. Like, that's it. I'll retire. I want Cody to go over on me. But what happened was is that Cody didn't go over on him, and it culminated in, like, this lackluster match. And it actually ended up being um, Dusty's last uh, moment on WWE television where they were fighting backstage and then Cody's like, no, I'm done with you. I'm done with Stardust. I'm done with everything. And the last shot is on Dusty, like, my boys, like, what's going to happen? It's very poetic because a couple of years later, they well, put on, they put on 
a clinic. They put on one of the best matches in each respective careers. Yeah, maybe in modern history. And and like you said, it's very, you know, the, the Stardust thing happens and he goes solo and then he feuds with fucking Stephen Amel, uh, Armel, who fucking played Arrow, and then he leaves. He joins Ring of Honor in 2016, promptly beats Christopher Daniels in June for the heavyweight title, and then he joins Bullet Club. And then he wins the U.S. belt in 2018. Okay, so I'm going to stop with Cody here because we're going to tidy this up here. Now, the Von Erichs, right, they are later on, but there is actually a third generation of Von Erichs, Kevin's kids, David and Marshall Von Erich. They debuted at Slammiversary 12 for TNA in June 2014. Um, there is not a ton to talk about with them. Um, and in truth, I haven't watched a ton of their matches, but they worked TNA for a while in Ring of Honor, and then they signed with um MLW in May of 2019 to some multi-year deals. So, and you know, they debuted in 2014. I would say probably the last time Avon Eric was on any form of wrestling show prior to that would have been you know Kevin in the 90s somewhere. Maybe and like not really wrestling at that point. You're talking after Carrie died, after Dave died, after Mike died. Like, so this that was like this is like the first time in like 30 years almost where you have Von Erickson wrestling again. So there and, was a, there was a WWE WrestleMania in Texas. I think it's 22 or something like that, where Vince bought the tape from the Von Erick Library and he did a nice thing. He had like a celebration in the ring of the Von Erich, what was remaining of the Von Erich family. It's sad to say, but you know, they're like, Oh, the Von Erichs. And like, you know, they got a nice cheer and stuff like that. So at that time, I think that was like their last, uh, appearance on television. But in term in terms of like a character sense, then yeah, you are correct. This is like his first time in 30 years. Yeah. And, and MLW, um, also online, I think also on YouTube primarily, that's Cornette's promotion. Uh, it's where MJF came from. Not where he came from, but you know, where he where he made his fortune. Um and uh yeah, so you know, finally some Von Erics there. I wish I could say more about them, but they just they're they're very young in their careers. I don't have a ton to say right now, but it's just nice to have them back in wrestling. I'm sure it's cool for Kevin. Um Charlotte Flair, probably the biggest deal you want to talk about when you're talking outside of Cody, maybe uh, Charlotte Flair actually first showed up as a 14 year old uh, in WCW in 2000 when Ric Flair was feuding with Vince Russo. Um, but not like as a wrestler, she just like helped out her dad. Then she debuts in NXT in July, 2013 wins the championship uh, in May of 2014. And currently she's 10 time women's champion uh, was the last ever Divas champion before they made an official actual women's champion. It wasn't a fucking giant pink and purple butterfly. Uh, one of the four horsewomen. Charlotte, one of the most influential, important women wrestlers of all time. Uh, certainly one of the most talented as well, regardless of your stance on her now. Uh, huge deal. Huge deal. And then David Flair, uh, her older brother... Kind of interesting, actually, because David didn't want to be a wrestler. He wanted to be a state trooper. Uh, but he followed Papa. He joined WCW in 99 and won the U.S. championship after Rick stripped Scott Steiner of it as president. Uh, but he doesn't really do a ton else. He, like, wins some NWA championships, but he, he like, kind of stops after 2008. Uh, it's just not really David's thing. Charlotte's the one that wanted it. And then for the Hearts, unfortunately... 
The only person you're really going to talk about now, there is a new Heart Foundation, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, in MLW. Not anymore. Not anymore. And that was with, uh, that was with, was that with Davey Boy? Davey Boy Jr.? Davey Boy Jr., Brian Pillman Jr., and yeah. I think that you're going to touch upon is Teddy Hart. Yeah. Teddy Hart is one of the most troubled figures in wrestling. I think he is currently in jail, again, for the upteenth time. But I will give Teddy his due. Teddy, uh, as far as I know, was going back. He was being scouted by WWF when he was 18, like around the time when Kurt came into the fold. And Teddy could do it all, man. Teddy was doing moonsaults. He knew how to work. He, he was trained by his grandfather, one of the last to be the heart dungeon but he was just such a goddamn loose cannon he was in ring of honor actually there's a famous story when he was in wwe the reason why he was let go originally because he was like kurt angle's roommate uh in a hotel and he started mm -hmm. smoking weed and kurt, uh, kurt angle got very offended by that he said, can't do that i'm kurt angle and teddy hart's like fuck you man i'm teddy hart so like they they're like all right we're done with you take a road but then like you know he kind of like went on the indies and started building himself back up again and he was in ring of honor at the time and was having great matches and you know he had the crowd digging out the palm of his hand there was one cage match it was against cm punk where teddy hart does a moonsault off the top of the cage which is like you know jimmy suck shit at the time yeah and you know, like it went, like people were going nuts, people were loving it. What does Teddy do? Climb back up the cage and do another moonsault, and just ruined. Like you know, people again went nuts, but it just ruined every you know psychology of the entire match. And this guy was like, you know, like when you do a move like that, like you better cover the guy and win because that's gonna take a lot out of you. Yeah, sell it. Yeah, so that ruined him again. And it's just a tragedy, dude. You know, this guy has the skill set and the character work to make it work, but, you know, just a very troubled individual and will probably never reach his true potential. Which means that the legacy of the hearts as it stands right now is with Natalia. And no disrespect to Natalia. Natalia is a former wins champion as well in WWE. Uh, one of if not the last disciple of the Heart Dungeon. Uh, Natalia is Jim Knightheart's daughter. So Heart adjacent, I suppose you'd, you'd call it. Um, Natalia is like kind of like a steady hand who saw the women's revolution, was there before, was there after, and solid worker, but never had like the charisma of some of the other hearts like not a not a super excellent promo which you know to be fair neither was brett you know uh owen was kind of a little more charismatic but uh she also just wasn't charismatic enough in the ring to, to realize so she's like she's very very important she's a great person to have on hand not really someone you're ever going to build a yeah. division around she, she carries the submission torch from the hearts and that you know she's kind of a bruiser too but that's not really going to translate to today's product i mean again good worker you know you need someone to put somebody over you put natalia out there former champion but yeah you know here's what it is i think you know she's she's reaching the 
not the end of her career, but I mean, like, you know, she's not going to reinvent the wheel at this point. But, you know, yeah. she, she is what she is. Uh, probably, you know, frankly, of everyone we've spoken about, the most successful in terms of wrestling uh, would be the members of the Enoi family, right? Now they're everywhere, of course, right? But Roman Reigns, easily, of everyone I've spoken about, right? Even Cody, right? Cody fucking, I mean, we'll talk about Cody in a second. Not that we have to, but I mean, Roman, Roman it has hit the pinnacle of what you can accomplish in wrestling, at least in the WWE. Multiple time WWE champion, universal champion, member of the Shield, uh, probably the most popular faction in modern WWE history. Um, Roman, you know, what the fuck can you say about Roman? He gets a lot of slack, a lot of, a lot of shit. Uh, Roman's great in the ring. When Roman is allowed to be himself and talk, he cuts a damn good promo. Uh, I'll always remember after he beat Undertaker at WrestleMania and he just came out on Raw and he just sat in the, he just stood in the middle of the ring for 10 minutes as the crowd boos the ever loving shit out of him and just smirks and waits and smirks. And then when it finally dies down, just goes, it's my yard now drops the mic. And oh, it was, was so was fucking good. Roman, Roman gets moments, dude. Roman just has a fucking knack for this shit. And him giving, being given everything at the time, Definitely not because people were still having a hangover from Super Senior, Senior, Juan Senior, Senior. And, and you know, I think the one thing that the modern wrestling fan wants is to not know what's coming, and they just, you know, it's fine. They want to make it. They have to make new stars, no doubt about it. But you know, too much at one time with one character, especially Roman, who was just, hey man. Like, guy's a good wrestler. But at the time, it was just like, you know, his Vince fed lines were just not getting over with the crowd. And, yeah. You know, they'll say probably like, oh, yeah, you know, that's how it's supposed to happen to generate heat and stuff like that. But he was a face, so it's like, what the fuck is the point? Yeah. But yeah, that <laughs> moment after the Undertaker match, perfect, poetic. Like, that was a true uh, baller move by him to have the crowd eating out of the palm of his hands like that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely incredible. And then the Usos... Um, probably they're in that family, right? Rikishi, yeah. Um, oh, so the, the Usos, um, Rikishi's sons, uh, troubled as Jimmy is, uh, one of the most successful tag teams in uh, the WWE today. And they, when they find, when they let them be the Usos, and they did the Uso Penitentiary, and they, you know, let them be. The character they are now, they're a little goofy, uh, but they're undeniably talented. And uh, they're great. They're they are really good in the tag division. You know, great, great people to have around. Definitely going to go down as one of the best tag teams in WWE, I think. And uh, listen, the Rock's, uh, the Rock's daughter, Simone, in the performance center, actively training. If she's anything like her dad, if she's even a quarter of her dad, she's going to be okay. So, uh, yeah. So so that's that's the little aside about where we are with the families of wrestling today. So to bring it all home, to bring this three-part epic home, right? Bring it on home. We are in the dark ages, right? WWE, they do OVW in 2002, 2007. 
They do Florida Championship Wrestling, which is not the same as Championship Wrestling from Florida, but it's supposed to be the same thing, but it's not the same thing. But man, 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 man. FCW gives way to NXT on February 27th, 2014. But before that, right, this moment here in 2012 that I'm about to talk about is the moment where it seems like it seems like there's a story that's about to end, but then what happens next is a little remarkable. So in August of 2012, NWA gets bought out by International Wrestling Corps under Bruce Thorpe. Uh, they like sue Thorpe sues NWA for like you know like insurance shit. Right? I, it's one of those things where like they found a technicality to sue NWA and get the name from them, and then they stop membership for NWA, and instead of membership, now it's licensing fees. Kills NWA. That's it. That cha- you know, uh, championship wrestling from Hollywood, where uh, Colt Cabana was and, and their champion was. They leave NWA. Is it? That's it. It's dead. It's dead in the water. This is it. But then, what happens next is kind of interesting. So, in 2014, NXT happens, and NXT originally an extension of FCW and just a developmental brand quickly becomes the WWE's avenue into the indies to tap into that energy that TNA had, that Ring of Honor has, that PWG has. Um, I know people will be mad at us for not talking about PWG, but they're just, they they don't compete. All your favorite wrestlers came from PWG. But... Yeah, okay, so real quick. So we, like, you know, uh, Ring of Honor and the scene at that time was kind of like the golden era for the indies. And then exactly, you had like a dead era again. But like the silver era of the Indies was like after Cody left. I mean, still go, it was going on around that time. Don't get me wrong, but like after Cody left and like it really started to elevate, like you know the elite, and uh, they all went to PWG. And there were the great Perilla Girl Wrestling shows run out of LA. You know, all your favorite guys that are currently in uh, AEW or WWE uh, went there and put on these amazing shows in like mm-hmm. this little this little bingo hall. Uh, friend of the show, Travis Gentile, went to had the opportunity to go to a show, and he was like, it was one of the most exhilarating experiences of his life. He went to Battle of Los Angeles when I think Matt Riddle was in PWG, Keith yeah. Lee was there, yeah. Ciampa was there. Yeah, all the all the NXT guys that you love, uh, yeah. and a lot of the AEW guys. So, in 2016, right, we flash forward a couple of years, Cody is in New Japan. He's with Ring of Honor, and then he's in New Japan. The Young Bucks are in New Japan. Kenny Omega is in New Japan. And on January 5th, 2016, after AJ Styles uh, unsuccessfully faces, I believe, Shinsuke Nakamura for either the IWGP Heavyweight Championship or the Intercontinental Championship, uh, is kicked out of Bullet Club unceremoniously as Kenny Omega and the rest of the uh, Bullet Club members beat him to death. Kenny Omega announces himself as leader, and this is Kenny Omega as the cleaner, right? Uh, Kenny announces that he is no longer interested in the junior heavyweight championship division and is now going to go straight after Nakamura for the Intercontinental Championship and do what AJ couldn't. Right then and there, Kenny makes a call to form the elite with the Young Bucks. They come back out after AJ has his curtain call and they kick the shit out of him again. Cody joins up in Ring of Honor, Adam Cole joins Bullet Club and starts the super click with the Young Bucks. Bullet Club 
right? And the reason that Ring of Honor is in Bullet Club is because Ring of Honor and New Japan partnered up in 2014. So New Japan and Ring of Honor have this pipeline, right? And all these Ring of Honor guys start going over to Bullet Club. Um, and then in May of 2016, being the elite, starts on YouTube, which begins as a tour diary, but soon reveals the storyline for tension between Kenny Omega and Adam Cole, with Adam Cole and Kenny kind of vying for power, eventually leading to Adam Cole being kicked out of Bullet Club by the Young Bucks and Marty Skrull. Um, this also... So, so now we're building up Kenny as leader. Adam Cole's out. Adam Cole shortly after goes to NXT, starts up Undisputed Era with... Uh, Eventually, Riley Strong, Kyle O'Reilly, Bobby Fish, blah, blah, blah. Um, September 1st, 2018. Six years after, NX, uh, after NWA stops being a thing. Dave Meltzer is asked on Twitter if Ring of Honor could sell 10,000 tickets at a show. Dave Meltzer says, no, I don't think so. Ring of Honor, just, they're not at that level. Cody goes... Okay, I'll take that challenge. So September 1st, 2018, some year after Dave Meltzer has asked this question on Twitter, All In happens. Cody, Kenny, the Young Bucks, the Elite, they partner up with New Japan, and they throw on this massive, big indie show. They they get Triple A guys on there, right? Nick Aldis, current NWA champion at the time versus Cody. Kenny Omega versus Penta L Zero, Pentagon Jr. Hangman Adam Page, I think, takes on Joey Janelle. It's this huge, it's huge indie show. Sells out in 30 minutes. Sells well over 10,000 tickets in Chicago. Meltzer says, yeah, you humbled me. Gives almost all the matches four stars. A lot of people say, by all accounts, that All In is one of the best indie shows they've ever seen. It's incredible. And... Three months later, in January, the Bullet Club Civil War starts, where Cody and Kenny start vying for control as Kenny reunites with Kota Ibushi. And in the middle of all of this, as All In is getting built up, NWA gets bought by someone. And Ryan, do you know who that someone is? Spite all the rage, I'm still just a wrestling promoter. That's right, my friend. Billiam Corgan buys NWA, and with it, all of its trademarks, and remakes NWA into a singular entity in which they will acknowledge the past from 1948 on, but with a focus on NWA being its own actual wrestling promotion for the first time in its entire history. The Bullet Club Civil War happens. Well, you have to touch upon just uh, just a moment of how Mr. Uh, Corgan got into the wrestling fold was because he tried to buy TNA. Yes, he did, and 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 in some respect, did like he he like bailed out TNA, and was supposed to become president, but then wasn't made president and had to yeah. like sue TNA. He had a handshake deal essentially with Dixie, and then she's like, "No, no." You're not having it. Because Billy think, didn't like I think, that. I think she saw like how much he got over with everything. And yeah, he was like, no, okay, I'm not going to put my money into this. Yeah, Billy didn't like that. So so Billy, but Billy also a lifelong wrestling fan, so he buys up NWA in the middle of All In happening. So then All In happens. 
The main event has the NWA Heavyweight Championship where Cody beats Nick Aldis. That's a big fucking deal. The Bullet Club War happens in 2018. And shortly after, um, the Elite leave Bullet Club after, uh, after Kenny Omega loses his IWGP Heavyweight Championship to Hiroshi Tanahashi and... Cody loses the United States Championship to Juice Robinson, and the Young Bucks lose the IWGP Tag Team Champions uh, t- Championship to I. I'm not actually sure who they lose it to. Possibly Tamatanga and Tangaloa, uh, but the Elite all lose. Everybody in the Elite loses in Wrestle Kingdom, and uh, the Elite leave New Japan, which is crazy because they are they're so over. They're like no. New Japan's tie to the West. Um, and on January 1st, 2019, on Being the Elite, AW is officially formed. May 25th, 2019, Double or Nothing happens at the MGM in Las Vegas, the first ever AEW uh, event under that trademark. John Moxley comes out, former Dean Ambrose after leaving the Shield, leaving WWE, comes out after Jericho beats Kenny Omega to fight for the heavyweight championship and all out, beats the shit out of him, beats the shit out of Kenny Omega. On October 2nd, 2019, the first episode of AEW Dynamite airs on Wednesday nights as WWE puts NXT, now the third brand of WWE, against them a matchup which outside of a few weeks nxt has not won yet and six days later after dynamite airs on october 8th 2019 for the first time in years and with more aplomb perhaps than nwa has had in decades nwa power airs with nick aldis as its champion James Storm as its North American champion, Jim Cornette on at commentary, and a studio in Georgia. And all of a sudden, we come to this point today where we have a company like AEW. Are they going to be WCW? Are they going to be TNA? Are they going to be Ring of Honor? Are they going to be WWE? Who the fuck knows? But what we do know is that while Dynamite does not do numbers that come anywhere near Raw and SmackDown, they handily beat NXT every week. And I don't... Listen, I'm not a TV guy. I say it all the time. I don't know shit about shit. But Dynamite has tapped into... AEW has tapped into a market in a way that arguably no company has been able to do since WCW while being different than WWE in a lot of significant ways. NWA, as a power, has returned to the forefront of the wrestling consciousness. Nick Aldis, over 500 days as champion. On YouTube, pulling in pretty decent numbers. MLW, doing pretty decent numbers. GCW, Impact, crowns its first ever women's champion who also happens to hate black people. So I don't know where we go with that. <laughs> Oopsie Daisy happens to be the daughter of horseman legend Tully Blanchard. Sorry, Tessa. Ring of Honor 
<laughs> still exists, kind of. New Japan. Never been bigger in its entire history. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people were like, oh, man. And it was kind of a shame because I feel like a lot of the fans that, like, you know, got into New Japan because of the elite where I was like, oh, I'm done with it. But it was like, like, don't do that to them. Like, you know, I'm not saying every fan did this, but I think, like, you know, a lot of people were worried. Like, okay, well, now we have a vacuum in New Japan. What will we do? Uh, they picked their shit up and got right oh, back to business, man. God, they knocked it out of the fucking park. Jay White's leadership with Bullet Club has been incredible. Naito is double champion. You have now more wrestling than you know what to do with. Even in the middle of a pan-fucking-demic, you have more wrestling than you know what to do with. We have a time in our history, in 2020, where WWE is not only... I mean, listen, they're still the big fish in the pond. They ain't going anywhere. Don't let anyone fucking tell you otherwise. That shit is never dying. When it's when Vince goes, it'll be Triple H. When Triple H goes, it'll be Little H. It's WWE ain't going anywhere. But for the first time since WCW folded, there is a legitimate alternative to WWE in a thousand different places. You've never had more places you can work as a worker pushes for unionization and and workers comp and and insurance and rights and unions in the wrestling community i mean it's kind of an incredible time to be a wrestling fan yeah it really is and it's a shame that we have everything going on because i feel like it's so crucial that you know these the, these companies still like like, I don't know what's going to happen at the end of this. Like, is NWA still going to be around? I think Corgan announced... I think they have a show tonight, but Corgan had an announcement of, like, the future of it. I still think it's going on. But, like, you know, especially for, like, um, AEW. AEW is good to go. Like, they have their, like, TNT is happy with them. They draw at least between 700,000 and 900,000 people a week. The numbers did not go down, uh, aside from, like, you know, some holiday shows, but who gives a shit? And... Yeah, man. This is the best time to be a wrestling fan since the 90s. They've got the backing that WCW had. They got a billionaire with open purse strings. But unlike WCW, well, in some ways similar, a guy in Tony Khan that, like Ted Turner, really loves wrestling. Yes. But I think in a different way. Uh, now, let me be very clear. This is not me rooting for billionaires. Um, I root for competition, and not because the invisible hand will guide me to freedom, but because fuck Vince McMahon and fuck WWE. I watch no, it. No, I think Tony, because Tony I, definitely, yes. You know, watch it not, because not I have to, but, but WWE is not practice. No, but, but uh, no, Tony definitely cares about his product and at least he's trying to do something different with him. And he's a, you know, Ted loved wrestling too, but Ted was like, all right, let the let the people run the show. Like Tony's actually like, you know, coming up with, you know, power rankings and, you know, stats. He's a big statistician. He's big on that. Um, you know, he certainly uh likes to do it with the football team, so with the Jaguars of which his family owns. So now he's trying to pull in the same foray with wrestling. And so yeah. Yeah. And to the elite's credit, uh, they have not overbooked themselves yet. And AW's got its flaws. I've got its problem with the women division. Um, Impact, 
Who knows how long Impact and Ring of Honor remain solvent, but there are options. They're still around today. (laughs) They're still around today. It's more than WCW can say. And so this is where we wind up. This is is the culmination of this three-part series is from humble beginnings and carnivals to billionaire wars to more billionaire wars and (laughs) global platforms in every country, on every continent, including Antarctica, Penguin Wrestling, it's... PG Dub. PG Dub. -dub. It's never been a better time to be a wrestling fan. And there's never been a larger bullseye on WWE's back. And does AEW end up winning in the long run? Does anyone end up winning? I don't know. But I think that we finally see that there is something outside of WWE and wrestling is different again. And that's all we can ask for. And uh, yeah, you know, there you have it. That's it. It's not, that's all baby. It's not the entire history of wrestling, but uh, it's a whole lot of fucking information and yeah, it's fucking cool. Yeah. Um, There's different avenues out there. You know, if you are a lapsed WWE fan, even if you're not like, you know, Give your attention to some of these promotions because they need it and they deserve it, honestly. Absolutely. MLW is fun. Uh, AEW, if you're sick of Raw and SmackDown, I really do recommend checking out Dynamite. It not be, it may not be for you, but I, I like it a lot. But you know me, right? If you've listened to this long enough, you already know what I'm about to say. If you want to see the best fucking wrestling in the world, you go subscribe to NJP World. And you go fucking watch the best wrestling in the world. Is a single in a, in a single company in this in this earth doing it better than New Japan? And I cannot wait until we get New Japan events again. And I can't wait until they reschedule this event at Madison Square Garden in 2021 so that we can go and I can go fucking watch Naito and it's going to be beautiful. And so, with this once again long episode wrapping up, Ryan. Do you have a legend killer for us? I do, and I'm going to send it over to you now. Damien, can you tell me who the man in the colorful shirt is? <laughs> well, hold on. Can you tell me who the man to the left of him is? Not in the colorful shirt is? Not in the colorful shirt. Okay. Uh, Ryan finally gave me an easy one. Um, okay. This is, this is uh, Tupac Shakur next to... An extremely young, who looks exactly the same, colorful Ron Killings. Yeah, you know, I kind of, I kind of made it a little easy because he, I think Ron is fifty and still looks like and still moves like he's twenty five like years he's old. 20, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, no. Uh, before he was a wrestler, our truth was a burgeoning uh, rap artist. And what's up? <laughs> Over there was a, you know what's funny? I went to a house show at Nassau Coliseum, and the loudest moment of the night was him doing that rap, and people went fucking bonkers for it. Our truth is over, and I'm sure he's comfortable with what he's doing in his comedy. Is oh great, yeah, but he loves it, man. They, he should have won the fucking feud with Cena. Should have oh, fucking yes. won. No, he should have gotten no. the belt. It's absurd. It's fucking absurd that he didn't win that feud. Uh, but yeah, our boy, our truth was boys with Tupac back in the day. Our truth burgeoning rap artist, and as we said, Ron Killing, first ever TNA, uh, first ever black TNA uh, heavyweight champion. Therefore, the early early goings. 
and then you know coming into WWE as well and became known for his comedy stylings but also real charismatic a great promo very fucking fast uh great just great in the ring uh r-truth is great and he's 50 years old and he could go another 10 years it looks like uh and uh you know tupac rest in power rest in paradise he's he's hanging out with andy coffin somewhere right? i'm sure of it yeah yeah them and them and uh oh ryan gave me an easy legend killer that's nice of him <laughs> yeah you, you, you wanted to you wanted to give me a little pat on the head yeah i couldn't really think of one so i was like you know what here you go it's awesome go. It's, a, it's a great picture <laughs> there you go bubby uh all right yeah so there you have it so to wrap up this big episode uh ryan what have what have you been listening to uh well a new local artist has come onto the scene here in Long Island, and that is Card Reader. And Card Reader is headed up by my very good friend, Tom Petito. And he also got uh, two other good friends of mine, Rob Sigliano on drums, and painted an exile guitarist, Mark Lambert, to help him out. And uh, they currently came out with a new single today, and they're planning to have a release soon, so go check them out. They're on Spotify, they're on uh, Apple Music, card reader it's fucking awesome go social support that's what i'm talking about ryan support the local scene support support our boys um i have been listening to a ton of death just a lot of death a lot a lot of chuck a lot of symbolic a lot of just going back uh just you know hitting scratching the old uh old school death metal itch a little bit uh sometimes you gotta you know, I got this new stupid idiot metal guitar, and so I need stupid idiot yeah. metal riffs to play. And uh, yeah, I've just been listening to a shit ton of that. I li- listen to a shit ton of old school thrash. Have um, you ever listened to Annihilator? I love Annihilator. Yeah, You're talking man. about Al- Allison in Hell? Al- yes, Allison in Hell dude. Annihilator. Oh my god, I listened like uh, my Allison Hell. <laughs> my girl's brother-in-law showed me them. Not too long ago, and I was disappointed that I haven't came across them before. But goddamn, that that flamenco in the beginning of Alice in Hell. Goddamn. Yeah, Alice, Alice in Hell and Never Neverland are both great albums of theirs. Um, uh, but my shameless plug is um, a long defunct band of mine by the name of Transients was recently put on a compilation. To celebrate our dear leader, Donald J. Trump, uh, in a compilation called Punk Against Trump Volume 2 by Massachusetts-based record label Denizen Records. And on this are some very cool bands, such as Western Addiction, a great punk band, War on Women, uh, excellent, excellent punk band, female-fronted all feminist um craig's brother western addictions of fat wreck bands a few fat wreck bands on there so it's a, it's a really great compilation of punk bands and it's really cool to be on it um sick man all proceeds go to the international rescue committee uh for covid19 relief in the u.s and abroad uh great organization uh great bands on there fuck the president fuck government um really honored to be on it and that band, can we uh, 
you think maybe we uh, get some some new new? Yeah, you know what? We are working on a little bit of new new, and uh, don't know when it's gonna come out, but you can expect a transients EP maybe someday eventually. Uh, there's there's some shit in the works. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, that's what I got. So awesome, man. We really appreciate anyone that's tuned in for this. This has been uh, very stressful, but a ton of fun. I've learned a shit ton about this dumb idiot thing that I like very much. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's been a lot of fun to have Ryan bail me out and show me just how much more he knows than me. Oh, stop. Um, and so, you know, we've got some some cool stuff in the works now, but promise no more two-hour history lessons. We will We will lay off for a little bit. <laughs> and we'll keep our schedule regular. So, for Ryan, for myself, this has been the most electrifying must-listen-to podcast in sports entertainment. This has been F-F-C. Double F and C.